Welcome back, um, everybody. I th hope everyone's refreshed um, after after having had a coffee or a drink of water. Um, my name's Tom Hart. I'm a senior research fellow in the public finance team here at ODI. Um, in this session, um, following the kind of opening and talking about some of the fiscal pressures that um, many countries have been facing, we're going to be discussing how ministers of finance can effectively design and deliver fiscal consolidation packages. Um, and I'm delighted that we've got four excellent panelists here to discuss this issue. Um, so presenting first, we'll have um, Daniel Andarangu, um, who is the country lead and head of programs at the Institute of uh, Public Finance in Kenya. And he has a wealth of experience across public policy, decentralization, uh, participatory governance and public financial management. Um, following Daniel will be Luke Iroh. Um, Luke is division chief in charge of regional studies in the African Department of the International Monetary Fund. Um, he uh, supervises the work on the regional economic outlook for sub-Saharan Africa and has been mission chief across a number of a number of different countries um, in, in West Africa and um, Botswana as well. Um, before joining the, the IMF, uh, Mr. Iroh uh, worked as a civil servant at the French Treasury, um, which is a bit of a theme because we also have um, Delphine Moretti, who's the lead in financial management and budgeting um, in the OECD's um, public management and budgeting division. And prior to the OECD, she worked at the IMF and the French Ministry of Finance and the Cour de Com, which is the French Supreme Audit Institution. Um, Finishing us on the panel will be Dr. Kay Brown, who's the Executive Secretary of the Collaborative Africa Budget Reform Initiative. For those of you who don't know CABRI, it's an intergovernmental organization that provides a platform for peer learning and exchange for African ministers of finance, budget and planning. And I think given the, the um, emphasis that we just heard in the, in the um, first panel about the importance of peer learning across ministers of finance, we're very happy to have um, Kay with us here today. Um, Kay holds a PhD in economics from the University of Cape Town. She lectured at Nelson Mandela University and subsequently joined the South African National Treasury, where she headed the budget planning unit. And she's also been the chief executive officer of a constitutional institution in South Africa that monitors and advises on equity in government budgets. Um, before we start, I'm just going to give a quick guide to the panel and what people are going to be talking about. So Daniel is going to kick us off talking about the fiscal squeeze facing the government in Kenya. Um, Luke will then give us a broader picture um, or, uh, looking across um, the RMS work across Africa and looking at the reforms that needed to address the current fiscal challenges. Um, Delphine will then take us through some of the challenges that governments in the OECD have been facing in maintaining spending control. And um, finally, Kay is going to um, talk about some of her experiences from South Africa and what this tells us about the kind of politics and tactics of spending control. Um, but to kick us off, let's turn to Daniel. Daniel, um, Kenya is taking, uh, facing quite a fiscal squeeze at the moment. Um, back in April, the president's uh, chief economic advisor made the news after he tweeted that debt service is consuming 60% plus of revenue. Liquidity crunches come with the territory. When maturities bunch up or revenues fall short or market shift, something has to give. Salaries or default? Take your pick. So is that the, cha the, the choice? Um, Kenya is currently facing, and um, please um, tell us a bit more about the, the fiscal pressures that Kenya is facing and the decisions the government is taking to deal with it. Thank All right, All right. Um, thank you very much, and uh, good morning. I'm happy to be here presenting um, a case for Kenya, and uh, as an example of what is going on um, in the global south in fiscal squeeze. And the quote you've read from the economic advisor 
is really sets up uh, us up on where we are uh, because for the, a long time until uh, 2019 we deferred um, consolidation making our deficits grow up to around um, um, up to around 25 uh, percent of, um, of, 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 the, of the revenues and that has continuously increased up to about now eating about 50 percent of government um, revenue so it is um, very clear that um, the increasing budget deficits uh, more borrowing debt servicing has taken us to a position where we have to rethink uh, the attempts of fiscal consolidation so in this um, uh, few minutes i want to reflect a bit on um, how uh, the deferred fiscal consolidation has been in kenya uh, how that has affected um, service delivery, what attempts the government is making, and some policy uh, alternatives that can be um, taken by the government as we move towards this. The context uh, we're operating in is um, there's um, an increase in demand for government services. Uh, as perhaps you could be aware, 5.4 million Kenyans faced um, acute food insecurity that is unprecedented in 2023. So it meant that the government had to step in uh, with social transfers, um, we are giving um, you know, safety nets to the vulnerable uh, population, and amidst that, still repaying um, you know, or, you know, or doing uh, debt service. So we also have very high pressure on um, the Kenya shilling, uh, depreciating against the dollar uh, and other major currencies. And noting also that about 60% of our debt is dollar denominated so and looking at how far we've come in 2014 uh, we took the first commercial uh, euro bond of two billion dollars the maturity of that is coming in in 2024 at a rate of 6.9 percent at the time that debt was being procured the kenya shilling to dollar exchange rate was about 116 and now is at upward of 150 so it means to be also uh, going to incur more uh, to pay uh, for you know for the commercial uh, debt we had um, uh, we had in, uh, we, we had incurred. So uh, looking at um, at this sustained accumulation of fiscal deficits, uh, there's a trend where the fiscal deficits increased uh, over the last decade to about um, and those are in Kenya shillings about 934. Uh, uh, shilling, uh, 934 billion uh, Kenya shillings, about 8%, which was the highest. Uh, but over the last uh, two fiscal years, there's uh, an attempt to reduce fiscal deficits with the current one standing at about uh, 6%. Uh, however, the in-year budget changes that happen uh, during supplementary budgets usually pushes these deficits even higher because the pattern is to increase expenditure within the year and reduce or you know use very um, optimal estimates of revenue so the deficit even grows wider within in-year uh, budget revisions so if um, with the ineffective attempts to cut down on um, on expenditure and also the falling short of uh, revenues it means that the fiscal deficits every year um, you know are increasing and as you can see 
the debt service as well, because those deficits are, have to be financed. The debt uh, service proportionate to the share of the government revenue, expenditure, and GDP, all of them are in uh, an upward uh, trajectory. Looking at uh, the debt service as a percentage of revenue, increasing over the last four years uh, by about from 36% to 49%, the debt service to GDP also remaining um, at 70% uh, and increasing to 8% in 2022-2023. So it's um, in um, relation to the tweet that we either default on debt or default on uh, services as had uh, been needed there. So what government is doing, we have not defaulted on any debt yet, uh, but um, that has compromised some service delivery in, um, you know, in, in the county and at the national level, as we'll see. Uh, a few months ago, the salaries to uh, ministries, employee, the employees in the ministries had been delayed. In the counties, the delay was even worse, uh, to go, you know, spanning to about three uh, to four months in, in, in some counties. So there's a compromise on service delivery, although perhaps the uh, the debt repayment or debt service has not been uh, defaulted. We're looking at it as um, also as an increasing proportionate of government spending. So of the revenue that the government is collecting, 50% goes to debt service. So even future borrowing is being um, incurred to finance recurrent expenditure. So we are borrowing uh, today to finance, um, you know, not investment, not development. So the return on investment is also very low, and some of them is very high. Uh, the government has tried to do domestic uh, borrowing or to grow the domestic borrowing market, which has not been very successful. Um, and the rate is also very high at 17%. That was um, two months ago. There was an attempt to float uh, boards and, and bills that didn't pick out uh, quite well. So we had to go to the external borrowing uh, once again. So those are the dynamics we are uh, playing against. So the impact on service delivery is um, compromised to, service, uh, to, uh, to, to services. So the budget at the national level, uh, the absorption is significantly higher, uh, but not at 100%. Uh, but it's much lower at the county level, seeing that 20% of the budget is not absorbed because the budget either gets there very late or never gets there uh, before the you know before the close of the year. So that's the compromise and the effect um, of um, debt and debt service to the service delivery. Also, looking at um, the MDAs being very constrained by the extent of operations or investments or projects they can undertake so new projects either uh, stalling or um, if, if if they start they, they do not have enough resources to see them to the end so we have some small bits of projects uh, cumulatively that um, have also increased the pending bills so the private sector also is not able to benefit from this um, borrowing because the government is not able to pay and uh, the public cannot benefit from it because the project that was the investment did not bring any um, any return. So that is the, the impact that uh, we are seeing. And looking at um, the fiscal consolidation on, 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 on um, social sectors, per capita spending on health is also stagnating, on education uh, is the same, for social protection also stagnating as the 
debt service and um, you know uh, the repayment to debt are increasing. So every other year, and the population is growing, and we are retaining the same uh, budget. The level of basic uh, services is compromised, and uh, it means that we are not able to allocate more efficiently to take care of the of the vulnerable populations. Now there are some external debt sustainability. Um, thresholds, some of them that you have reached, others that uh, we are within. The present value of uh, external debt to GDP ratio, we are doing well on, uh, on that one. And over time, we are trying to reduce it. If you look at debt to export ratio, the present value of debt to export ratio, uh, the threshold is 180. We've breached that. But over the years, there's uh, in the medium term, trying to go back to the threshold and what is happening the government has um, um, done some reforms especially in uh, domestic resource mobilization uh, through the national tax policy and the medium term uh, uh, medium term revenue strategy those um, policy documents are supposed to expand the tax base and increase the uh, the revenue but um, it's it's not uh, it's not picked up quite um, yet because these are in draft forms. The government came in a year ago and still uh, pushing towards seeing some of these reforms uh, come into um, into fulfillment. So these are uh, the debt uh, service to export ratio. That one we have also defaulted, but we are good on debt service to um, revenue ratio. So the risk is still high. We are in a high risk uh, of uh, debt distress. And we are hoping that in the medium term, if uh, the reforms in tax and uh, revenue mobilization are affected, we should be able to move to the uh, medium uh, debt distress. Some of the institutional reforms accompanying fiscal consolidation uh, include the bottom-up economic transformation agenda by the new government, which is uh, looking at investing in high-value, high-return areas uh, from health, um, housing, looking at digital superhighway, uh, looking at uh, investment in MSMEs, and uh, looking at uh, investment in, um, in education. So there are some reforms that are already going into that as part of the overall um, agenda of the government. Also, the public finance management reform strategy, the new strategy is um, should be the 2018-2023 strategy is coming to an end, and a new strategy is coming up with the attempt to increase efficiency in government operations and also increasing um, and expanding the resource base for the country and same for the national tax policy and the medium term uh, debt strategy other structural reforms this has it was in the manifesto of the government but uh, it's not been um, uh, implemented yet consolidation of the state-owned enterprises state-owned enterprises consume about 28 percent of the overall budget and uh, most of them are either loss making or getting funds from the exchequer but instead of uh, consolidating them we've actually seen them uh, increase they are, they are most uh, soes than they were in the you know in the previous years the, the human development uh, through education reforms and um, primary focus on health through uhc and primary health financing we also seeing promoting um, transparency and accountability also as a key reform, uh, the government uh, empowering institutions that are able to mitigate and fight corruption and mismanagement of resources. 
Then other non-inflationary financing includes expanding the domestic um, market for borrowing so that the shocks and vulnerabilities that are externally uh, motivated could be uh, managed and issuance of uh, long-term uh, instruments. Finally, we are looking at what the government can do to retain control on public finance. There is one strategy that worked very effectively. Um, the, it's called the Economic Recovery Strategy of 2003. Uh, it was implemented and it moved Kenya from a negative growth to of negative 1% to 5%. Um, that means it was one of the most effective policies that Kenya has implemented. And it had four main pillars. One of them is macroeconomic stability. This is um, managing uh, inflation. Uh, right now, the inflation is within the uh, levels that the government targets of 7.5%. But the last uh, month between January to March, it was in upwards of about 10%. So, uh, so as, as we move forward, we're looking at uh, also private sector-led growth. Uh, there's, um, in the medium-term revenue strategy, there's an attempt to reduce the corporate tax from 30% to 25%, uh, in a way pushing uh, more investment by the private sector. Then human development, as mentioned, on education, on health, on social protection, and also uh, good governance, which is addressing issues of corruption, of mismanagement, and transparency, and accountability. What remains um, a key question is the involvement of civil society and think tanks uh, like IPF in um, advancing issues of accountability because an, a civil society organization or think tank cannot on its own or by itself enforce accountability. And uh, the role of the think tanks and institutions are not very clear on how they can enforce that accountability in the new platform. So I beg to stop there uh, in the interest of time and happy to respond to any questions. Thank you. Daniel, thanks. Thanks, Daniel. That was great. I, th I think Kenya is a very important example because I think, as um, uh, Mr. Slassy said in our first panel, that wh whilst we kind of have a lot of media focus on the, the countries that have defaulted, um, like Ghana and Zambia and Sri Lanka, actually a much more common um, challenge is the kind of challenges that Kenya is facing, where there's no default, but debt burdens are rising, squeezing out um, uh, non-interest spending and uh, affecting you know, as you so eloquently told us, the infrastructure and social spending um, rather than a debt crisis. Um, so we're now going to zoom out from a specific country case to um, a broader look across um, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so Luke, um, I'd like you to inv uh, uh, invite you to present now. Um, you're going to be presenting us research from this new RMF paper, which I'm pleased to say is being released today. And this is the first um, public uh, uh, um, presentation of it. So I encourage everyone to go and look at the, the paper and the blog on the, on the um, RMF um, website. It's called um, Navigating Fiscal Challenges in Sub-Saharan Africa, Resilient Strategies and Credible Anchors in Turbulent Waters. Um, so Luke, what, what, tell us a bit more about what does the paper say about the current fiscal problems and what you suggest as uh, priorities for countries' fiscal strategies. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm very briefly going to present this paper that, uh, thank you, we launched today uh, at, this, uh, at this conference. Um, it's joint work from an IMF team. Uh, and the motivation of this paper is, uh, let me just, the motivation of this paper 
is that the region, as Abebe mentioned this morning, is facing a very challenging fiscal environment <clears throat> marked by a spike in both the level of debt and the cost of debt. Uh, frontier markets have lost market access, and even the poorest economies have really difficulties in mobilizing cheap financing. That's what we have called at the IMF the big funding squeeze. Uh, the paper um, shows that a new strategy is needed in order to avoid further deterioration uh, of budgetary position and the risk of a systemic uh, debt crisis. The paper provides advice on how to design medium-term strategies, especially how to calibrate fiscal targets. And the paper also looks at this important question of policy implementation and how to address very large implementation risks in the region. Start with this slide showing that the debt problems in Africa have, uh, have recently received a lot of attention in the media, but also among donors and policymakers. After declining in the first decade of uh, the 2000s, following the International Debt Relief Initiatives, the regional debt has increased very fast, doubling in the past decade from 30% of GDP to about 60% of GDP today. As of 2023, more than half of the low-income countries in Sub-Saharan Africa were assessed by the IMF as being either in debt distress or, or at high risk of debt distress, according to our debt sustainability analysis. A few high-profile uh, restructuring, debt restructuring cases in Chad, in Ghana or Zambia uh, have shown that these operations have become much more complex because of the diversity of creditors and of instruments. So one of the key policy priorities for the region is to slow this trend and avoid a more widespread crisis. Uh, so one of the main themes, one of the main findings of our paper is that fiscal policy in Africa lacks what we call an effective anchor. Uh, this is not totally specific to the region and the lack of anchoring is but the lack of anchoring, I would say, is more pronounced in the African region than it's elsewhere. Our paper offers several, uh, I would say, analysis to support this claim. And let me briefly present five pieces of evidence. The first one is, like everywhere else in the world, debt projections uh, have drifted up. And the slide, the chart on the slide shows the revisions of our projections across uh, vintages. And each year we tend to revise the debt trajectory upward. And these revisions have been sometimes larger than in other regions in the world. Second uh, fact, uh, an econometric analysis, uh, we, we conducted an economic analysis to test whether countries' fiscal balances improve when debt increases, which could creating a kind of correction mechanism. And we find that while there is a positive response in fiscal balance to debt in advanced economies, we don't find any statistical significant response in Sub-Saharan Africa. And third, we conduct also a third exercise, uh, which is to measure the maximum primary balances achieved by countries in the past over uh, a certain period of time, say three or five years. Uh, windows. And we find that these maximum primary balances, which are a kind of measure of the peak effort that countries can achieve, uh, these maximum primary balances were lower in Africa than in other regions. This means that it's more difficult for them to sustain elevated surpluses for long. Another example of the lack of anchoring is provided by the deviations from fiscal rules. Many African economies have fiscal rules, but in the decade before COVID pandemic, 
they tended to breach these deficits, these deficit ceilings more often than other countries, on average half of the time and by a larger margin. Finally, we did a last exercise comparing fiscal forecasts and outcomes. We found large deviations. Fiscal balances tend to be 1% of GDP lower ex post than projected three years uh, earlier in, in African economies. Thus, overall, taking all, all this evidence together, it's fair to say that uh, there is a phenomenon of drift in fiscal policy in the region. And this drift is multidimensional. It's a drift observed over time uh, compared to plans across vintages, compared to fiscal rules or in relationship to debt levels. In our view, this drift could be mitigated by introducing more credible and implemented, actually, more credible uh, medium-term fiscal strategies to try to re-anchor fiscal policy. And that's, in a sense, the purpose of this paper, which is to describe the main components of these fiscal strategies alongside six important dimensions that I'm going to discuss in the next slides. The first one is starting with the question of fiscal targets. Uh, our conclusion is that fiscal targets in Sub-Saharan Africa are often poorly calibrated and too focused on short-term deficit targets with insufficient uh, emphasis placed on debt targets. In our view, debt targets are fundamental to anchor a fiscal strategy without a clear view of uh, where debt should go in the medium term. Fiscal policy lacks direction and tends to be too short-term oriented. Our paper proposes a new methodology to calibrate these debt targets based on the principle of preservation of the debt servicing capacity. The level of the debt ceiling uh, or the debt target is in, the, in our methodology calibrated to ensure that interest to revenue remain manageable. I mean, I can, the details are in the paper. So why this emphasis in the debt calibration on the debt service and not on the debt level itself? But for two reasons. One. Uh, it's very difficult to estimate or to guess the maximum debt levels in Africa because there have been very few episodes of debt distress in the past two decades post, you know, hippie. And the second, so basically, but we have, I think, a, a better understanding of the limits on the debt service that we have on that level. And second reason, in many economies, the main problem is not the debt level, but it's the debt cost, as uh, was discussed this morning. You have actually cases where debt is very high, but because it's concessional, it's not a big problem. So the key constraint is really the capacity to service debt. And using this methodology, we, compu we compute country-specific debt anchors for the region. And on average, we find an average debt anchor of 55% of GDP, with half of the countries today being above their country-specific debt anchor. Turning now to the, uh, a very important policy question, which is the size of the adjustment needed. So some argue, some journalists, but also I, I heard this morning, some people argue that all countries in Africa are in a debt crisis and that uh, many of them would need debt restructuring. And there have been very alarming press articles. Our findings do not support this view. Uh, when we compute the fiscal adjustment needs, which are the change in the primary balance needed to bring back debt to a safe level, uh, we find a very big diversity of situations. So this estimation is based on various estimates of the debt safe level because we don't exactly know what it is. So we use different approaches. In one case, 
we uh, assume that debt would go back to pre-COVID levels. In another one, we use the fiscal debt rule uh, ceilings. In a third case, we use this uh, uh, debt anchor that I've just mentioned before that we computed with the debt servicing capacity. And our conclusion is that uh, in the region, adjustment needs for an average country seem feasible using traditional fiscal instrument. I mean, using fiscal adjustment, not debt restructuring. Because we, we find average uh, adjustment needs of two, three percent of GDP for, an, for, for a medium country, which given, and we show that as well, the history of, of, of African economies seems feasible to achieve in the medium term. In fact, actually, we find that one quarter of the countries have negative needs, meaning their fiscal space. And as uh, my director, Abebe Selassie, said this morning, we have, of course, a certain number of countries that are, on the contrary, in very difficult situation and where actually the fiscal adjustment need that we compute are so large that it's not possible through fiscal consolidation alone to achieve them. And for this, that restructuring is important, but they don't represent the majority of the countries in the region. Turning now to uh, the third question, which is the one on composition. These two, three percent of GDP that we mentioned, should they be achieved by raising revenue or cutting expenditure? So we built a data set of past consolidation episodes in the region and found that in the majority of cases, countries in Africa have tended to consolidate on the expenditure side, mainly by cutting capital expenditure, and which is obviously not optimal from a development perspective. And our recommendation is actually to shift the emphasis and place much more emphasis on domestic revenue mobilization for several reasons. One, it has a very large potential as discussed this morning. Two, it's less damaging for growth uh, than cutting capex, and there is evidence for that based on fiscal multipliers. And three, uh, more revenue means also more capacity to repay debt, and hence an increased borrowing capacity. So you have a leverage effect through higher uh, domestic revenue mobilization. The downside of revenue-based consolidation cannot totally be overlooked, and this morning some were discussed, including uh, political hurdles and also impact on inequality, but we think that some design choices can, to a large extent, mitigate these problems. Fourth, uh, another question is the pace of adjustment, whether the adjustment should be gradual, front-loaded uh, in the initial years or back-loaded. For advanced economies, our recommendation is generally for the adjustment to be very gradual and be larger in the years when the growth cost is minimal, especially when the output gap is positive. But the multipliers tend to be low in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, regardless of the cycle. And so this is not a very strong argument to postpone the fiscal adjustment. Other reasons for front-loading the adjustment include large financing constraints in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, hence front-loading is sometimes uh, the only option, and credibility effects. On the institution side, uh, implementation risks, as I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, are very high in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we saw evidence, multiple evidence, of de-anchoring, fiscal slippages, and difficulties to stick to plans. Strong institutions are fundamental to reduce these implementation challenges. In fact, we could say easily, and I think everybody would agree here, that institutional reform is a prerequisite for policy reform. This is true everywhere in the world, but I think it's even more true in Africa, where institutional capacity is lower. Our paper discusses how reforms should be tailored to the Africa context in four main areas, um, medium-term budgeting, fiscal risk management, expenditure controls, and revenue administration. Uh, 
And the slides here just give you a flavor of what we discussed in the paper, which is specific recommendations that are tailored to low-income uh, context in these four areas. So uh, uh, macro developing macro uh, fiscal ability, uh, developing a, a central risk management capacity, automating some budget procedures, rolling out digitalization tax collection. So how all these priorities should be adapted in the case of, uh, of low-income countries. And that's it on my side. I have a last slide on the on, on the support, but we can leave it for the discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Luke. That was great. So I, I just want to pick up um, th this point about kind of having credible debt anchors. And you, you said the median um, is around 55% of GDP. And obviously, that that's not Kenya's specific one. But Daniel, I wonder if I can just ask you to reflect on, I think, Kenya's debt GDP ratio is now up to around 70%. Um, as a member of the East African community, it signed up to agree fiscal rules among the community to keep, to have a debt target around 50% of GDP. Why do you think these kind of debt targets that, that Kenya has signed up to have not been credible and have not been uh, adhered to? Right. <clears throat> Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. Um, the debts ceiling um also it's good to mention it's moved from 50 percent to an absolute figure to a higher absolute figure to 70 percent and now to 50 percent um i think just trying to play around with the denominator if that doesn't work you push the ceiling now to an absolute figure um and mainly because the expenditure is really high and and, and increasing and there is no simpler way to balance between the revenue that the government is able to collect and the expenditure pressures that are there. In the last uh, 10 years, the government pursued the expansionary uh, fiscal policies, but the return on investment on the debt incurred did not respond to the domestic resource mobilization. So the gap grew bigger and bigger. And so the attempts to reduce that have been like very reactionary uh, and trying to see what can work. There are also expenditures that are driven, that are politically motivated. Um, they famously call them roadside declarations, uh, where politician promises um, a road, uh, you know, a bridge or something. And it has to be, um, the, it has to be factored in in a supplementary budget. So ultimately, the expenditure grows bigger at the end of the year than what had been um, approved. So there's also that um, failure by parliament to manage the amount of borrowing that is incurred by the executive um, within within the budget. So that the convergence criteria, uh, the 50% convergence criteria is, um, is, 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 is difficult to achieve with a kind of uh, a fiscal framework that doesn't adhere to uh, public financial management principles. So every other time that alteration happens, it expands the expenditure, but nothing is done on the revenue. If there are reforms on revenue, they are also, um, you know, long-term, they are not short-term, cannot adjust the most immediate um, needs. And the most likely uh, thing the government does is to tap into the already formal sector that has been, you know, also overly taxed uh, because there are no efforts to, rather the efforts to tap in the informal sector are not working very effectively. And that still uh, continues. Great, yeah. thank you very much. And I think 
so some of your points there talk to the issue Ratten raised in the opening about you know looking at what what this the funds being borrowed what are they being invested in and are governments able to get a kind of tax return off the the, the um, economic expansion that, that that should produce if they're well designed um, but I'm now going to turn to um, Delphine so Delphine I know the the OECD undertakes regular surveys of its members on on budgetary practices so can you tell us a bit more about um, what you're learning from this about some of the the challenges that OECD countries are, are facing in, in managing spending control thank you Tom uh, thank you for the invitation to uh, to the OECD as you know we are an institution with 38 member countries uh, which are mostly advanced uh, economies but we also have regional networks uh, in Asia, in uh, the Middle East, in North Africa. It's very important for us to be part of this global uh, dialogue and share uh, the experience of uh, OECD countries. So for OECD countries, uh, uh, let me uh, say a few <coughs> introductive words that will uh, echo what we heard during the, the first session. You, you know that uh, OECD countries emerge from uh, successive crises with higher budget deficits and, and debts. And uh, consequently, they are confronted to uh, significant rises in short-term spending from the higher burden of uh, servicing public debt. What we are observing at the moment, this was explained in the economic outlook that was published a few days ago, is that there is a modest uh, fiscal consolidation that is taking place at the moment mainly uh, reflecting savings from the full withdrawal of the pandemic uh, support and the gradual uh, phasing out of energy-related uh, support. However, uh, more consolidation efforts are, are needed and uh, in contrast with uh, emerging and developing economies, uh, they will probably have to focus on the expenditure side because on average the capacity to raise revenue will be uh, of course more limited uh, at the same time uh, the oecd countries are facing significant longer term fiscal uh, challenges from the impact of uh, climate change aging populations we heard about that this morning uh, government uh, uh, spending on pensions, health and long-term care is estimated by the OECD to rise by around 5% of GDP by uh, 2060 if uh, policy remains the same. So in OECD countries, the situation could be summed up as uh, one where short-term fiscal uh, pressures, fiscal challenges may appear less acute than in other countries. But longer term challenges are, are critical and ministries of finance need to learn how to budget in the short term to long term uh, fiscal squeeze, so to say. Uh, against this background, the, the questions are what budget systems, PFM systems will, uh, will need to deliver in the, in the coming years and whether they are fit for purpose in their current state. So on what uh, budget systems we need to deliver, let me start with a few words about the future of uh, public spending conferences that have been organized by the OECD since last year to seek uh, perspectives from uh, leading academics and thought leaders on uh, public finance. And one thing that uh, many of the speakers highlighted was uh, uh, an increasing concern with the fact that mounting and unfunded spending needs were still to be recognized by both politicians and the general public. 
and that without such recognition, it was doubtful that PFM systems in the OECD would evolve in a way that would be suited to the future challenges. So there is big fiscal uh, communication uh, issue. On what budget systems uh, will need to deliver, I think there is a widespread recognition uh, in the budget officials community of uh, OECD countries that there are three critical areas that we already heard about. First, uh, we need uh, credible fiscal frameworks uh, with strong political ownership. This is really important. That will provide a clear indication to citizens and markets about the medium term trajectory of public finances and what will be done to ensure a gradual reduction of debt to GDP ratios. Second, we need uh, budget processes that should allow uh, revisiting routinely and effectively existing uh, expenditures and identify opportunities for reallocations. And the key point is that these reviews and reallocations will likely be needed on a very large scale in the OECD. And this is because spending priorities, as reflected in current budgets uh, of OECD countries, are to a large extent a legacy of a time when society and economies of advanced uh, economies were quite different from what they are uh, today. And uh, third, we need more sophisticated approaches to new spending uh, decisions. And this includes uh, using the possibilities offered by the new technologies, AI, big data, and we see that already happening in OECD countries uh, significantly. And this will be needed for targeting better government spending. But it also requires developing better capacities at identifying systematically the impacts and the added value of new spending proposals in key policy areas, such as the environment, climate, gender mainstreaming, and other key priorities of OECD countries' uh, governments. Now, on, on whether uh, budget systems in the OECD are fit for this purpose, uh, as you know, uh, there have been quite a lot uh, of budget reforms that took place after the global financial crisis. And in OECD countries, it was basically uh, a small number of budget reforms pioneered by some very advanced countries that had been more uh, generally adopted uh, uh, by OECD countries. And uh, in particular, many countries have sought to introduce top-down and medium-term uh, budgeting which uh, were expected to uh, bring uh, better allocation of uh, resources, spending prioritization, and also fiscal discipline. So as you can see on the left, medium-term expenditure frameworks, MTS, which are typically the outcome of top-down and uh, medium-term budgeting processes, were used by just a half of OECD countries before the GFC, but by almost all of them uh, before the, the pandemic. However, uh, these reforms uh, do not uh, yet always deliver the expected uh, outcomes. And in our most recent survey of uh, budget practices in the OECD, we asked uh, our senior budget officials network whether the most recent budget they had prepared was consistent with the ceilings that had been set in the previous year uh, MTF. And what the survey's preliminary results show is that only a quarter of OECD countries had actually complied uh, with these ceilings. And there is a huge heterogeneity of uh, circumstances in the countries, but uh, the reasons why there have been these uh, divergences comes down to two broad uh, reasons. 
first one structural issues with the MTF design and processes, and the second one is uh, conjunctural issues caused by the poly crisis, as uh, phrased by the ODI. So the structural issues include the fact that sailings are sometimes revised annually at the outset of the budget formulation process, which is undermining uh, the process and the credibility of uh, preparing a MTF. Sailings are sometimes breached uh, because uh, there is a lack of robust multi-year baseline expenditure uh, forecast. There are many other reasons, uh, but, but capacities is, uh, is one of them. The conjunctural issues are basically the fact that greater flexibility or even discretion has been granted to governments during the pandemic in managing uh, uh, public spending. They could operate without a fixed budget calendar. They could design new policy measures without clear estimates of their impact on the level of public debt. They could even use off-budget funds sometimes. And at a time when uh, politicians continue to grapple with an ongoing sequence of crises, there is maybe, as could be expected, a reluctance to go back to the pre-pandemic ways of budgeting. So to, to conclude this, this presentation, I think the key question for the session is, uh, was what have we learned uh, from the previous crisis, from this crisis? I think what we see uh, at this moment is that uh, we are not in the same uh, time than the GFC when uh, a lot of countries were thinking of completely changing their budget frameworks and did launch a number of very important uh, reforms. On the contrary, uh, there is a desire to strengthen the existing PFM frameworks. And I think, uh, getting back to a point that was made earlier, we have a fairly good toolbox. It's just about learning how to use these tools a little bit uh, better. So uh, at the OECD, to support this effort, we have worked on a spending better framework that is uh, defining key entities, function, processes, and procedures that uh, together are necessary for quality uh, budget uh, institutions. Uh, what we see at the moment, this was another question from the ODI colleagues, well, where is the focus at the moment in OECD countries? What we see is that there is a lot of effort that is put into improving the spending reviews uh, frameworks. Lots of OECD countries already have spending reviews processes, but they want to improve them to make them more effective. Uh, there is also, uh, I think, a willingness to revisit the basics uh, of the fiscal uh, frameworks in many OECD countries because their limits are being acknowledged and also the impacts, the damages that the pandemic has, has caused. So several countries in particular are in the process of uh, revising their uh, fiscal rules. And uh, we will see how the fiscal anchors are going to, uh, to evolve in the, in the future. And, and finally, to, to conclude, uh, I want to say that despite the fact that there is this focus on spending reviews and, and probably uh, budget uh, directors and ministries of finance foresee the fiscal consolidation effort. We do not see any decreased effort in moving forward green budgeting or gender budgeting. These type of reforms remain at the forefront uh, of the concerns of the ministries of finance because they know that in the future, it's not going to be uh, only about reallocating, but about spending better and reallocating money where it matters more. And this is very much showing from uh, what we see of uh, what is being done at the moment in the in the ministries. So thank you. Delphine, thank you very much.
I just want to pick up one of the things that you, you highlighted, um, which is that the challenges um, in kind of implementing medium-term budgeting frameworks in OECD countries. And so, Luke, I just wonder if, given that, that um, having a stronger medium-term budget framework was one of the things you highlighted as necessary in your presentation, um, whether, whether that provokes any thoughts in you as a, a, about the kind of applicability or realism of um, highlighting these as a, as a key component of um, fiscal strategies for, for African countries. Well, that's actually a good example of a reform that needs to be adapted to the African context. And I would not say necessarily that they need a medium-term budget framework. I would say they need a medium-term framework and how it's done, whether it's a medium-term fiscal framework, budget framework, uh, whether it's indicative binding, I mean, the range of options. I think what we see in, in, in Africa is that many countries have actually medium-term fiscal frameworks, but they are not really useful. And they are not very useful for several reasons. One is that the annual budget itself is not credible. So uh, given that the annual budget is not credible, it's difficult to build on that a credible medium-term uh, uh, framework. And, and one of the reasons why it's not credible is also because I think one of the key preconditions is not present, which is sometimes that the macro fiscal capacity is relatively limited to do a, a projection in revenue, in expenditure, in deficits and debt. Uh, so, and, and also another issue that exists in the region is the, the one that I mentioned, which is that um, the high-level fiscal objectives, which could be enshrined in rules or not, are sometimes either non -pre uh, not present or not credible. So I would say if there is a priority, it would be first to establish this anchor first at the high level so that the medium-term budget fiscal framework can really fit into or be consistent with these high-level fiscal objectives and uh, improve really the accuracy and the capacity in uh, macro-fiscal forecasting. So, that's perhaps how I would uh, uh, describe the priorities for, for low-income countries. And then later, uh, you go from this to a more developed medium-term fiscal framework, and when the capacity is there, move gradually towards uh, medium-term budget frameworks, initially indicative, of course. Great, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm gonna hand over to Kay now. Kay, you're head of, now head of Cabri, you're a former head of budget planning in South African Treasury. So can I ask you to use your, your extensive experience to give us more of an insider pictures of uh, how negotiations over spending control play out? Okay, thank you very much. And thank you very much for uh, the invitation. I have not been invited here only to speak about South Africa because Cabri is for the whole of Africa. So I'm going to uh, refer a bit to South Africa, but then also um, to our experiences on the continent. So Cabri back in 2017 had already noticed um, or taken note of the fact that there are circumstances which can bring an acute uh, budget pressure uh, to bear, like e the Ebola experience within Liberia or a sudden change in oil prices, um, military um, activities, um, and so on. So already there was a conference in Ouagadougou in 2017 uh, to look at this and see what countries can do. Broadly speaking, there were four things that came out of this conference. Uh, firstly, the role of the Ministry of Finance in buffering political pressure. So in other words, providing the correct information around the trade-offs and options. Uh, the importance then linked to that of data in decision-making and having accurate data. Uh, to be able to cost uh, various act, um, options. 
uh, also identifying the sources of fiscal risk um, and then obviously uh, efforts to reduce the vulnerability to risk, which obviously is reduced when you have these acute pressures, which we now see manifest in the policy crisis, uh, the poly crisis, um, and the reduced ability to transfer uh, some of those risks. Interestingly, uh, within that conference, there was also mention made uh, of the various budget reforms and PFM tools and uh, so on that we used, uh, but also mention made of maneuvering budget games uh, where uh, ministries of finance were using uh, tactics uh, in order to balance their books. I don't know if uh, Florence is here, but she was talking about uh, a focus on balancing the books, but um, that was noted. Uh, I'm going to then jump to South Africa just as a quick example, because it was a, was or is a poster child of PFM uh, reform. Quickly, what can we say in South Africa's favor? Uh, well-developed budgeting systems, we can debate this, but sort of well-recognized in uh, worldwide uh, PFAS, Open Budget Index, etc. Um, tax rates are reasonably high, so unlike perhaps what was discussed uh, by some of the colleagues, maybe not room to increase taxes. Well-developed financial marks, uh, markets, not um, extensive use of concessionary loans and aid flows makes it a little different from some other countries. Uh, in terms of economic growth, uh, definitely currently a problem with economic growth, especially caused by the stranglehold of the electricity supply, um, high unemployment rates, high inequality, uh, and no legislated fiscal rules, um, however historically uh, known to stick to its budget statements in terms of uh, what it wished to achieve. What are currently the problems that we're seeing manifest? Uh, bond issues are not fully taken up. The February main budgets um, did not make any provision for, for public sector wage increase. There's under collection on the revenue. There's more spending cuts. Spending cuts started in 2009 as belt tightening, so-called. Um, and currently uh, they're busy with their in-year adjustments process. Uh, which provides only for legal changes uh, within spending. Uh, and it's unclear that there will be funding for that. Why? Um, just to give you a few headlines, we choose to show you that the Minister of Finance of South Africa had received most recently, a few months back, uh, the African Banker um, Finance Minister of the Year for banking reforms. Then moving forward a few months, we see that um, South African Ministry, uh, Minister of Finance indicates uh, that there needs to be uh, consolidation. The Minister of Social Development um, arguing for her um, continuation of a grant which was uh, brought about by the, the COVID pandemic, uh, which was a support grant but which has not been discontinued. Um, in some, in some uh, cases viewed then to be a basic income grant um, type of expenditure, which there is uh, a public outcry for anyway, so not to say that uh, she's just having a fr frivolous request there. <laughs> um, we see all kinds of information then in the media indicating that if you're going to have this particular grant, then these are the areas that need to be cut and by how much they need to be cut, so it's quite a big 
um, fiscal pressure, amongst others. Um, also, uh, Treasury is uh, starting to need to raise more short-term borrowing, um, and the President not necessarily indicating that there need to be uh, cuts on the spending side. So that just gives a sense, I think, of um, you know, a, a poster child, but there's a lot of trouble, and I think this is just um, true of the of the poly crisis. Um, what I wanted to talk about was budget games. So we have the formal budget reforms in our and our tools in our toolbox, um, but there is a puzzle that we're trying to solve. I noted Delphine's puzzle was very nice and it all interlocked perfectly. Um, but I'm talking about, uh, I want to talk about a little bit about some of the tactics that are played and what effect they can have on the budget process. Um, so uh, here, and this I think all, will resonate with all budget practitioners, no matter where you perhaps come from, um, a, a, a game within the ministry uh, where the fiscal policy department, for example, uh, underestimates the, um, the revenue collection or overinflates some important spending um, elements so that what is made available for spending is either less, either as an increment uh, or as a, a, a cut, a bigger cut than, than it needs to be. Um, then the budget officials go out, speak to line ministries, negotiate, etc., etc. Towards the end of the budget process, this gets eased. Uh, the winners and losers are different and are not uh, the same as 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 we uh, the reductions or the hard negotiations took place in a way perhaps this is like uno when you play a power card you can reverse the order of play or make someone skip a turn um, the truth though is with games um, if they're repeatable games like the budget process um, then there are winners and losers and they reposition uh, for the next round of budget uh, uh, negotiations uh, game number two, I think, will also be something that um, will resonate with people. It can happen in a cabinet committee where you have the whole budget process and you discuss the fiscal envelope, the tax, et cetera, et cetera. And then either your Minister of Public Enterprises or Trade and Industry or whatever argues that the funding that, are, that is needed for some or other uh, state-owned enterprise has nothing to do with this budget process. It is an investment and there's a return on investment. And so you can actually uh, borrow for that. And I think Mark had, had referred to that earlier this, this morning. And that's perhaps um, where we have drafts that becomes Turkish drafts. So you have the same economy, the same participants, but you're allowed to move the pieces uh, differently. Um, then the third game, um, that I've chosen, I've only got three, uh, to look at is a spending cuts. And this game or uh, interaction takes place between line ministries um, and uh, the treasury. And essentially, you have a need for spending cuts, and then you have certain reforms. For example, they may relate to program-based budgeting or results-based budgeting in whichever format. You link your budget items to that and any spending that doesn't link um, quite directly to that is um, up on the chopping block or you look at big bullet payments for example in capital look for rescheduling look for full spending and spending on bottled water where you apparently could get billions um, 
and look for cost recovery and so on. But the point is that over time, if you look at countries, you will see, you know, a slew of, of reforms that, that were layered on and added um, that are formal. And I think conceptually, sometimes where the formal reforms start and stop and the tactics start uh, can be debatable. Um, however, there definitely are some tactics. Sometimes you end up um, executing a tactic in a country. Um, perhaps you planned it, perhaps you didn't plan it to that extent. But an example of a tactic would be you tell line departments, if you reprioritize funding, you may keep the funding. You may allow that in the first year, you may not allow it later on. It might be circumstantial. Uh, you might have predicted that up front. Either which way, they are winners and losers, and you lose trust within the budget process. Um, I think also, I think Florence is not here, but I'm quoting her liberally while she isn't. She had spoken about changing your basis of costing. So moving from activity-based costing or to zero-based budgeting or, or and so on. And the idea there would be to try and get a different view on spending and more specifically um, to look at cuts. Um, and then there are other tactics of, of, of um, trying to make other provisions, for example, um, allocating funds for appropriation, but not allocating them to align ministry. So avoiding having to actually make the decision and hoping that you actually don't, but if you do, you already have it um, enacted, for example. Um, so those can be budget games and tactics, and essentially um, they kind of result in a bit of an implosion um, of the budget system. What do we have? We end up with NOMIC, which is actually an approach to games, more than you can play it on any board. But it is essentially that, that you can play by any rules uh, that you choose. And I think everyone can see what happens there. Essentially, you don't have willing participants. You have withholding of information. You have a lot of time spent in the gaming and a lot less focus, uh, perhaps, on solving the problems. I think in terms um, of the poly crisis, we would need to look at, and I'm not sure that this is a well-researched area, but at whether or not the gaming has increased, um, or whether the you know the the, the number of, of games have increased. Uh, but I think the important thing that one would want to look at is whether or not the PFM system then remains neutral, or whether the gaming within the system actually starts detracting from your uh, efficiency of your PFM system. Uh, essentially, at the end of the day, uh, what you want is you want collaboration and co-creation, maybe put those puzzle pieces uh, back together. That means there are a few tough conversations and policy choices that need to be made. That also means that we need to explore more uh, in terms of the diagram um, perhaps that we have of how our PFM systems work, uh, you know, from outcomes, higher order outcomes, all the way through to, to the mechanics. But we then also need to go and look at how that is done and how that can be better done to link to political systems and to bring others into the conversation as well, so that we really truly do have better budget outcomes. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Kay. That was great. And a reminder that when we're talking about all these technical reforms, that they've got to be robust to the actual human behaviour that underlies the systems. And much of the success of a budgetary system is going to lie in those relationships between the, the different actors. And I, I think you illustrated that that brilliantly. And I mean, just to talk about the kind of destabilisation of uh, budget games under fiscal pressures. This is something that happened in the UK where the Treasury used to allow um, ministries to, to carry over any unspent funds and build up a surplus. And then, of course, when the global financial crisis hit and there needed to be fiscal restraint, that got abolished. And so, you know, the, the incentives were not stable for, for how, uh, you know, line ministries were expected to interact with the Treasury. Um, I'm going to open up to the audience questions, um, to our online audience as well. Please submit your questions online and we'll be able to um, read them out for you as well. So um, please, any any um, questions? I noticed we didn't have a woman ask a question at all in the in the first session. So if there is a, a woman who would like to answer a question, I will give you priority so that we don't have too much um, gender bias. I can't, um, I can't see one, so I'm going to take these first um, three over here. We'll start on the left-hand side um, and come over to, to um, the middle here. And uh, again, as in the first session, if you could just um, introduce yourself uh, before you ask your question as well. Hi, my name is Mark Boland. I'm a uh, credit research analyst for Red Intelligence here in London. I focused a lot on Africa, so I have two very quick questions. One to Daniel. So when it comes to Kenya, a lot, well, at least the part of the fiscal trouble we're in is, you know, the political devolution, which has been, you could say a, a success politically has increased public services, but essentially added 3% of recurrent expenditure uh, with that, which so far has been debt financed. And I just wanted to ask you what, could you say ways to kind of increase the incentives for county governments or county governors to increase their own revenue base and make, you know, essentially, make a stronger contribution to the fiscal uh, consolidation from the county governments. And the second quick one is to look, uh, Luke, uh, I know you, this is kind of on the fiscal side. So my question is on, on the financing. If you look at the countries that are in potential debt distress, for many of them, like three quarters of the interest cost is domestic debt, which is higher. I mean, is there a way to kind of decrease, I mean, I would kind of argue that maybe they've had access to too much financing at too high rates. And for a bank, there's very little incentive to lend at the private sector, 20% when you can lend to the government at 18%. So is there anything you can see to kind of, I mean, what, what contribution could you have from an increased financial intermediation? Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Good morning, my name is Paolo De Renzio. I'm a professor at Fundação Getúlio Vargas in Rio, in Brazil. Uh, my question is also for Luke and, uh, and Daniel to some extent. Uh, starting with, with Luke, it's really whether in the work that you did preparing for this report, uh, you actually considered not just, you know, what to do about sort of the current situation and, and the consequences of past bad decisions, you could call them bad fiscal policy decision that led to the debt built up across a number of countries, but actually looking at some of the causes of those bad decisions. I mean, you mentioned institutional reform as one of the things that is necessary for some of the solutions to, um, to sort of um, uh, to take root, but 
you know, unless you look at some of the underlying causes that have led to these bad decisions, then you're not very likely to see those institutional reforms happening in the first place. Uh, in some work that I'm involved in uh, currently, uh, we work start with the proposition that there's a basically a big gap in uh, domestic accountability around decision making around public debt. Uh, and that what you need to do in the end is to sort of really strengthen the accountability framework around public debt decision making uh, in a number of countries. And we're sort of exploring different ways in which you might be able to do that by working with accountability actors like parliaments, like supreme audit institutions, like civil society and the media and so on, to sort of, you know, prevent future debt crises rather than arguing about what needs to be done to sort of cure them after they have uh, happened. So I was wondering whether you have any thoughts on that based on the study that you did, but also whether this is something that, you know, Kenya is one of the, uh, where there's an interesting example, for example, of a civil society campaign uh, trying to promote domestic accountability around that. So that's also why I think this is relevant for Daniel. Thanks. Marco, Andrew, you, we'll, take, we'll take both yeah. of you and then, yeah, then we'll come to some answers. Yes. It's yeah. So as Marco Conjano, the I uh, look again, it's for you, but really like to hear from Kay and Daniel as well. It's related to what Paolo said. There's a very interesting chart you showed with the debt ratio were going down, and then countries sort of graduated, so to speak, from the HIPIC. Part of that assessment, I was still at the fund at the time, was an assessment of whether countries had sufficiently strong institutions, and that was pretty based. That's all we had. PIFA score. World Bank, CPIA, etc. Uh, it was clearly it was a strong bias of best practices. So I, I like very much the last slide you put on, and your implicit recommendation is perhaps we need to take a fresh look at this, be more pragmatic, much less best practices perhaps oriented. But the, the quick question to you is: Did you get that, that wrong? kind of some 10 years ago, because at that point already we let countries go, and that just by coincidence perhaps, led to the start of the funding squeeze, and we knew the interest rates even at that time could only go up, certainly not down. So again, with the usual annoying benefit of hindsight, perhaps that decision was taken a bit in haste, Thank you. I'm Andrew Lawson uh, from Fiscus. Um, two questions on, on issues which I think haven't been discussed very much. One relates to a comment which uh, William Ruto made quite recently about the credit rating agencies and about the fact that credit ratings for Africa seem to be somewhat biased. Um, I'm, I'm half Argentine, so I would say Argentina is one of the, the world leaders in debt defaults. But one of the interesting things is that within you know, three to four years, its credit ratings go back up again. Uh, whereas countries such as Kenya, that has never had a default, uh, never get credit ratings as good as Argentina sometimes gets them. So that, there's clearly something not quite right. There's a bias. And the question is whether there's any role for international institutions in trying to, trying to change that bias. So that's, that's one question. The other relates to fiscal rules and the potential role of fiscal rules and fiscal councils. Uh, Daniel referred to the convergence criteria of the East African community, but I noticed um, Delphine and Luke, you didn't say very much about these. So I'm just wondering if you see a, a role for those uh, in terms of 
OECD experience or, or broader international experience. Thank you. Great, thank you, Andrew. Um, so we've got quite a range of questions. The incentives for subnational governments in, in Kenya to raise revenues, um, uh, the domestic debt markets. Um, Andrew raises a related question for external debt or credit rating agencies. Um, Daniel, I think you've got a few questions addressed to you. Do you want to go first? And then I'll go to Luke and then um, Delphine and Kay, you can come in with any, any comments you would like to add. All right, thank you um, for those questions. Um, I take some of them and I think Luke will support me in some of the ones that refers to IMF especially. Um, so whether there's an incentive for counties or subnational governments to increase domestic resource mobilization, uh, there's a robust formula that the national government uses to distribute revenue to subnational government. And one of the parameters um, they use is fiscal prudence. Although it's a very small proportion, uh, it was initially factored in in the first two formulas. We are now doing a third formula. Uh, it was um, removed uh, since um, you know the revision of that formula. So the incentive to really mobilize resources is not you know really there, and there's over reliance from national government transfers. But also noting that one of the critical there are three main streams of revenue that some national governments can collect. Uh, one of them is property taxes. Uh, property taxes are huge of them that has a huge potential, but the responsibility of updating valuation roles that values the property to the current value belongs to the national government. So if the national government doesn't update the valuation role, the property taxes that the counties can collect is limited by the, you know, the extent of valuation that the national government does. So there's that um, uh, gap there. Uh, but uh, the studies have shown that there's a huge potential for counties to collect, especially on uh, on property taxes. But more incentive would be there if there was a fiscal prudence parameter reinstated to ensure that the counties that are able to collect more benefit also from the national uh, level share. Uh, but more importantly is uh, the functions that are uh, primarily subnational functions should also be accompanied by resources by from the national government it's not the case currently there are still functions that are primarily funded by the county government but the money for those functions remains with the national government so even if you're able to um, you know support devolution the money should also support our functions on the question of um, debt accountability framework uh, and some of the coalitions uh, that we are supporting in Kenya is the Okoa Uchumi uh, that supports transparency in um, debt procurement and debt uh, processes, uh, which essentially is one of the biggest gaps because uh, if you're not aware of the terms of um, uh, you know, debt and how much you're supposed to give as collateral, uh, then anything goes. So sometimes the interest is very high the negotiations are poor or, or very haste because there is uh, an urgent demand for uh, for borrowing and there is essentially no return and those some of those documents are not publicly available so even following through to see what was the market providing 
did you take the most efficient and effective uh, you know loan terms is parliament involved in these processes because also sometimes uh, when you hear some of these commentaries even by members of parliament saying they are not aware what are the, you know what the terms of that debt procurement were so that uh, uh, framework can uh, you know can, can be pushed forward then on credit rating um, i think i agree with the with, with the president on on that one uh, but i will invite luke to comment more on that because um, we 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 are crying uh, that loudly and i support him on this uh, what can um, African governments do to ensure that uh, you know this credit rating is, is is done and also that is also able to you know be adjusted considering the circumstances that the governments also have to endure. Thanks, Daniel. Luke, over to you. Okay, thank you very much for for this very interesting question. So perhaps I'll start with the one on the debt drivers. I mean, we have done debt decompositions to see basically what were the main drivers of debt over the last decade basically and why did the debt went from 30% of GDP to 60% of GDP and when we do this decomposition at the country level or at the aggregate level what we find is quite interesting which is that of course the cumulated fiscal deficits are a big driver of debt you could expect that but a very large also driver of debt are the stock flow adjustment which is this unknown gap between the the cumulative primary deficit, the impact on uh, interest growth and exchange rate, and the change in debt. And actually what we have found is in Sub-Saharan Africa, every year the stock for adjustment account on average for one and a half percent of GDP, which is really significant. If you accumulate that over 10 years, you see that, I mean, it's not exactly additive, but it's almost half of the debt increases due to that. And indeed, these stock flow adjustments are mostly related to poor PFM practices and perhaps the institutional capacity was not there when this, so I don't know how to interpret that, but at least there is a weakness in PFM that is really a very big, I think, explanation in this story. On the fiscal deficit side, when you do further decomposition, you see that there are two main elements here. One is the shocks, the external shocks that are, uh, very important to explain the increase in deficit, especially the commodity price shocks in Africa, because you see big increase in deficits in countries that are resource rich when the revenues collapse, uh, especially after 2015. Uh, <clears throat> exchange rate also can be a very big shock that affects that. And the second uh, big explanation we discussed this morning is uh, increase in public investment and the problem that the returns of this investment were not really taxed. So basically, you see the increase in the spending, but you don't have the increase in revenues even a few years later. So in, as a result, that never decreases. Uh, on your question about the, the cost of debt and the cost of domestic debt, so I think it's, more, it's, it's really a very big issue now in the region. More than half of the debt in Sub-Saharan Africa is domestic, 60% actually, which is something that people don't necessarily know. They have the impression that all the debt is external or even coming from donors. This is absolutely not true. Most of the debt now is uh, is domestic. And the cost of this domestic debt is indeed quite higher. I mean, I think uh, before the crisis was about 200 basis points higher compared to a, a, a euro bond, for instance. So I think the fundamental question today, except if, of course, we can mobilize more concessional finance, which would be the, the, the way we are trying to push at the fund to, to, of course, reduce the cost of debt, is to reduce these domestic borrowing costs. 
And here, I think one of the solutions, which is very complex to implement, is uh, financial market developments. And the uh, problem is that this cost is very elevated because also markets in many African economies are very small. So uh, how do you do that? Um, it's a long term process, you know, financial market development, which can take sometimes a decade or two decades. So it's not really a, a magic solution to the problem of the of the of the cost of uh, domestic debt. But I think it's uh, probably uh, the solution in the medium term. Uh, regarding your question about so the question on fiscal council, I'll take first. I mean, we believe at the fund that they are very useful. The problem in a low-income country context is that uh, human capacity is limited. So it's not like you have so many people in many ministries of finance that are so good that you could put some at the Ministry of Finance, some also in a fiscal council, some at the central bank. So the question is, again, how do we adapt this model of fiscal councils to a low-income uh, context? And here, some of the ideas that we had is perhaps at some point, uh, for instance, when we discussed it at the YMU level in West Africa, you, you could not have one fiscal council per country, but perhaps one for uh, the eight countries of, uh, of the YMU. Another idea was perhaps to put uh, perhaps the fiscal council in institutions that already exist, for instance, the central bank, the statistical institute, or uh, the audit uh, institution. I think we need to be creative here uh, and perhaps uh, find models that are not exactly a replication of what you observe in, uh, um, in advanced economies. And finally, regarding your question on credit rating. So, I mean, we have not done analysis on that, so I'm not going to give you an answer because I don't know it. What I know is that we have looked at the question of whether there is a systematic bias in the risk premium uh, in the debt cost, which is a, a, a kind of related questions. And statistically, we could not find that. So I'm sorry to be a bit disappointed here. Uh, the countries that pay higher debt costs in Africa tend to be the ones that have the highest debt and the most deteriorated fundamentals. And you don't really see a systematic bias against African countries when we look at that. So that's, uh, but, but we have not done the analysis for credit ratings. So perhaps the, the, the finding would be different from credit ratings, but at least uh, this question comes all the time, whether there is a bias in the, in the, in the cost. It's not very visible in the data. Uh, the higher cost in Africa comes from the fact that the fact that the debt situation has really deteriorated very much, and this is reflected in debt costs. That's it. Thanks, Luke. Delphine? Yes, on, uh, on fiscal rules and, and fiscal councils, maybe some very quick remarks. So uh, uh, virtually all OECD countries have fiscal rules, very few exceptions. Uh, and uh, the number of fiscal councils is, uh, is very much increasing. Uh, at the OECD, we have quite a lot of analytical work, best practices. We are supporting a lot of fiscal councils, and we do believe they have an absolutely crucial role to, uh, to play. Of course, uh, fiscal councils are not going to be the solution to a lack of decision making on fiscal issues in ministries of finance. So, uh, it's important to have strong fiscal councils with uh, appropriate uh, responsibilities, but at the same time, the reforms of the fiscal frameworks are needed. And uh, on fiscal rules, I think there is, as you know, a lot of discussions on what are the most appropriate fiscal rules for the future, which is a whole <laughs> uh, separate and long discussion we, we could have. 
but uh, the, the focus at the moment is maybe more on uh, reinstating this medium-term expenditure frameworks that are allowing countries to explain how they intend to meet the fiscal targets. So I wouldn't say the problem is the lack of fiscal targets. The problem might be more that uh, it's a moment when there is this lack of clarity on whether the fiscal, uh, on how the fiscal targets will be met, irrespective uh, of whether these fiscal targets are smart or not, which is another problem. I'm going to come in on Marco's question, but I'm going to reframe it slightly so that it's not just about debt per se. <laughs> so about best practice, um, just to say that um, I think in terms of our thinking around PFM systems, we do need to really think around sort of technically where the job of the Ministry of Finance starts and stops and relates to line ministries and so on. Um, we also then need to look at the social contract and see the other players that need to be involved. How usefully can a Ministry of Finance engage civil society, engage politicians, etc.? We understand that the budget is very technical and aspects of it is really <coughs> technical, but at the end of the day, it is the people's money and we have to find a way uh, to explain this and explain trade-offs um, to 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 others uh, so that we have a, a clearer idea of the effectiveness of, of of our pfm system and if the pfm system fails um, or there's too much copy paste of best practices um, it should then be easier for us to identify uh, where the problem might be of course nothing ever um, will beat uh, unpacking that problem then specifically and finding a specific solution uh, to that problem great thank you as we started a bit late, I'm going to keep you away from your lunch a little bit longer and take a second um, round of questions. So we've got one over here. Rebecca, is that a hand there? Tim and um, over there. So if we if we start start on this side again. Thank you. Hello, my name is Antonia. I'm from the Zurich University in Switzerland, and I have a question to Luke and Delphine. So. <laughs> I was wondering, and I'm say, I say this in the spirit of yesterday's discussion on rethinking PFM. So when I heard your presentation, Luke, um, you said basically the debt or the fiscal rules or the debt breaks are ignored. And I was wondering, and then your answer to that was recalibrating the rules. And um, so I was wondering, is this really the right answer? You know, has, has it, and also this question goes to Delphine, have you thought about that maybe fiscal rules or debt breaks work only in certain, you know, cer under cer certain, certain circumstances? And because uh, my understanding is that you always need to sort of build in an exit clause. So if this, you know, so I, I'm not sure if, uh, if I'm making myself understood, but I come from a country context, you know, Switzerland, and in Switzerland, it's really, um, it's almost a fetish, that the, the dislike of, of public debt. So the citizens demand fiscal discipline, and therefore, uh, you know, it's easily enforced, you know. So I was just wondering, have you ever thought about, or have you ever questioned whether that might be the right instrument? Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Simpson. I'm an economic historian at uh, Oxford and a former, former ODIer. Um, but I just had a question. This was sort of sparked by Luke's comment that one of the first things to 
what typically gets cut in a budget squeeze first is is the capital budget. And if we look historically, that's very clear trend in the data, right? The capital expenditure tends to be the first thing on the, on the cutting block. Um, so I'm just wondering if that's something you're already starting to see and how you're thinking about that, particularly in the context of a dialogue around climate finance that's very focused on, on an assumption that there needs to be large continued uh, investment financing flowing to to Africa and so how how do those two kind of the short term and that longer term vision come together and do you see other types of uh, financing responses maybe not through the government that will still ensure that that climate finance doesn't fall off the agenda there was a question from over here as well and then we'll come back to you Tim okay sorry it's the same mic Thank you, um, Martin Kessler from the Finance for Development Lab, a think tank based in Paris. Um, I have a question for uh, Luke and Daniel. Um, you know, my understanding of the, of the message of the, of the report is that um, uh, there are added pressures, um, but but kind of managing manageable uh, adjustment, but which need to be done in the medium term. A lot of um, uh, liquidity support from the international system. So my question is, is the uh, international system, the World Bank, the IMF, the African Development Bank, right-sized for this support uh, towards the medium term? Um, and, and, and putting in the context of Kenya, uh, especially for 2034, there's this bond that will take a large share of, um, of, of revenues. So is you know, international support, how do you, should it, which forms should it take? Especially, how do you view the um, uh, President Ruto's proposal to reschedule over long term the, the, the debt uh, that the debt service that is owed? Sorry, there's one 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 last question back here. Hi, I'm Tim Williamson from the World Bank. I I was re reminded of a, of a conference in this room about 15 years ago when there was a, a discussion on budget as theater or that and i think that was around the malawi case and uh, and i'm struck by this conversation again being sort of quite technical uh, and talking about technical solutions uh, to to some of these problems when when i hinting at it this is a, this is a people problem i'm also uh, uh, recall a conversation i had on fiscal rules with uh, I think uh, the head of the macro department in the Ministry of Finance in Tanzania, a guy, Mr. Kamogisha, I think his name was, and he was discussing whether whether they were worth it. And he his argument was, not really. We have fiscal discipline and macro fiscal discipline at the moment, uh, not because of fiscal rules, but because there's a political consensus that uh, that 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 this needs to we need to enforce it. And I think is that uh, and so how does one create such a consensus that this is this is needed when let's say in OECD countries perhaps the cat has been let out of the bag with with uh, with some sort of less uh, with greater flexibility uh, and and I was thinking about you know we heard about games in the budget process but uh, Daniel I, my previous job in the World Bank was in, was in Kenya and I used to tease uh, tease the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the macro uh, people when we were talking about revenue projections. I used to say, in, in five minutes, I can come up with a more credible revenue number than you, can, than you have. Uh, and it's not about technical nature of, or, or necessarily of projections. It's about, uh, about realism. And similarly, in, in Kenya, one of the, the sort of a set of games that takes place 
every every week and every month is around cash management and the allocation of cash during budget execution. And I would argue in terms of the accumulation of domestic debt in Kenya and other countries, a lot of it comes down to the way day-to-day -day cash is actually managed and how that impacts on, on, on the domestic debt. Uh, and, uh, and that is a lot of the driver of, of why domestic debt in Kenya is 50%, I mean, sorry, debt service in Kenya is 50% of revenue. Thank you. So, Tim, you started off saying that I think, and I think this is a, a, a maybe a, a theme that comes across, which is how far do these technical or these technical reforms will only have an impact insofar as the actual change behaviour of the actors in the in the budget process. And I think that that's a point which I can perhaps ask everyone to reflect on. But I, you, you, you then you then bring it back to one of the most kind of technical areas of PFM reform and talking about cash management. And uh, um, but. Um, what, what, what I suggest we do is um, I'm going to ask people to uh, our panelists to answer that and also to offer up any closing reflections they have as well. I think we've got a, a similar set of questions um, from, um, you know, from Rebecca and from um, Martin on um, thinking about, you know, are we seeing um, capital expenditure cuts already? And is there kind of, um, you know, is there international assistance? that are uh, set up to support the kind of what Luke, you highlighted as manageable adjustments, right? Um, and um, I think that, Daniel, there was a specific question for you on the the big kind of um, uh, principal repayment that, that um, Kenya is going to be facing next year on its euro bonds um, and some questions about uh, um, fiscal rules and whether whether they work and um, you know whether they really matter or it's the underlying political consensus that is that is really the issue at stake so um, what I'm going to suggest is that we'll um, go in reverse order from the initial speaking so I'm going to go to Kay first um, and then we'll finish up with Daniel after going through Delphine and Luke as well so Kay over to you any response to the questions and your closing thoughts please I think um, perhaps just for the sake of time a brief comment to say that Yes, we do understand that the budget is technical and particularly more so in certain areas than others. Um, and we also understand that it's a process that in, at certain stages, you know, has secrecy involved uh, and so on, given it can have impacts on financial markets and that sort of thing. Um, however, the budget process has to go wider than that. Um, and certainly at the end of the day, it is about people and budget games might be played inadvertently. Um, to balance just to balance the books, the sheer pressure of the job, um, or it might be a tactic uh, that's planned, uh, but certainly uh, bringing in more of the actors in the budget process uh, and bringing them in um, in a way to have a, a discussion about trade-offs um, is the way that we have to look towards solving uh, these problems in the future. Great. Um... Um, so on, on fiscal rules, uh, I think it's a, it's a very good uh, question, and um, I think what we under, what we underline in the spending better framework is the need for clarity on the fiscal strategy of the government, um, and the need for political endorsement of the fiscal strategy. And whether this means that there needs to be a fiscal rule in the legal framework is another question, and actually. I was saying that a few countries in the OECD do not have fiscal rules. Some of these countries have a fairly good uh, implementation track uh, of their fiscal strategy. So, 
uh, I would say uh, fiscal rules are not necessary, but they are also a very good way of giving clarity. However, we, we observe in OECD countries that there has been a multiplication of fiscal rules, sometimes five, six fiscal rules, a debt rule, a budget balance rule, expenditure rules. Mm -hmm. And definitely when you have six, seven, eight fiscal rules, the kind of clarity you want to achieve with your fiscal strategy might not be achieved. So I wouldn't say they are absolutely necessary, but they can help, but they also have to uh, meet a certain number of criteria, including uh, clarity understandability by the public and by the, the markets. Um, on uh, the, the fact that uh, we, we have technical solutions to, uh, to people's uh, problem, I think it's a, it's a very good uh, comment you've, uh, you've made, uh, Tim. And I just want to, uh, to, to underline that uh, at the OECD, we are very aware of the fact that the communication, engagement with the citizens, uh, with the wider uh, community and stakeholders is very much part of the equation of solving the current fiscal challenges we have at the moment. I was mentioning in my presentation that we need to do more on communicating to the public the long-term fiscal challenges, and we intend to really work on that. Uh, by uh, leveraging the work we do in general on public governance, trust in government, communicating to, uh, to citizens and try to apply it to the fiscal uh, space. So this is something where uh, we, there will be more work from us in, uh, in coming years. Okay, thank you very much. Very briefly on the various questions, I agree that uh, with Delphine that the credibility of the rules do not depend only on design. That's for sure. But when you have a poor design, you cannot have a credible rule. So I would say, uh, seen from the perspective of uh, countries in Africa, the median uh, ceiling for the debt rule is 70% in Africa, where the median uh, uh, debt ratio is 60%. So you already see a little bit this debt ratio has been set at a level that was, in a sense, not binding really for African economies. So because the thresholds were not credible, then the rules are not really used. So I agree with what you said, but I think at least the calibration is also important. Then uh, regarding the question of the tension between cutting capex on one hand and investing in climate needs on the other hand, yes, it's it's a tension. But I think our recommendation here, and we produced uh, in the context of our last regional economic outlook a chapter on that. The solution is actually that the climate, at least uh, spending in Africa, I'm not talking about other regions, should pro mainly come from uh, concessional financing. Uh, we're not saying that this should finance through uh, through uh, budgets and, uh, and and domestic revenues. Uh, and especially what we uh, discussed in, in this note is that there is a big potential uh, from climate funds that is untapped in, uh, in, in Africa. A lot of money there, and uh, African economies barely tap it for various reasons that I could explain. On whether IMF and World Bank have the right size for support, I can just talk about the IMF. Uh, I think what we are doing at the moment is trying to expand the size of our fund for low-income countries called the PRGT. Uh, one issue that we have is that the money that we receive from um, the international communities that uh, is, is provided, these are loans provided at the, our SDR rate, but then we online them at a zero percent. So there is a cost, which we call the subsidy, which needs to be covered. And uh, there is a campaign uh, right now to try to get this money. And uh, we also got some money from the recycling of the SDRs of uh, uh, advanced economies. So this is ongoing. Uh, but whether the IMF needs to increase, yeah, it needs to increase. Yes. Uh, no. 
And finally, relaying your question on uh, the people's problem, not just technical. I like the way you present it. I, I would just frame it in the context of African economies, where I think the issue really is, is trust in, this, uh, in these economies. It's, it's, it's um, especially what you see today in the Sahel and the fragile countries, there is a structural lack of trust in the capacity of the government to provide public services, and it creates a, a very negative loop in which there is no trust. So basically, uh, the population stays, uh, the, the tax compliance is very low, so you cannot provide public services, and then there is, uh, it reinforces the lack of trust. So how do you break this loop, I think, is extremely important. How do you re create trust in public services and perhaps you need at the beginning to have better public services to basically unlock this uh, positive loop. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I think without um, uh, repeating what my colleagues have said, uh, just mention something about the maturing Europe next year. Um, the general message that the government is sending is that we are not in a very good um, fiscal environment and it's likely to become was before things become better. So inevitably, I think we tighten our belt um, when uh, Eurobond falls to you. But at least for this time, there are more progressive reforms, as um, is indicated by the medium-term revenue strategy and the national tax policy um, that is likely to expand the revenue base. We have an ambitious target of um, increasing revenue by 16%. Historically, that has never happened. Usually, it's about 4%, 5% growth. Uh, so um, we'll see uh, when it comes whether the 16% is something we can pull off within a year. Thank you for having me. Great. Yeah. Thank you all. So we started off this morning um, reflecting on that, that, that um, you know, maybe we need to pity the finance minister. And I, I'm not sure we've done anything to um, help help kind of uh, assist them. But I think we've raised an interesting set of questions um, that, that do need to be taken forward, which is how, how to make fiscal commitments stick, how to make them credible. Um, do good what look like on paper, good PFM processes always lead to good outcomes. And how do we make sure that these institutional reforms actually change the behavior of the, the policymakers and others around them in, in the budget processes? Um, we've also raised, which I, so I think this is a kind of, some of those are old questions, but I think this just reinforces that we, we are still looking for good answers to them. Um, and we've also had questions about the international support that is needed. And I would highlight that um, tomorrow we have a session specifically um, looking at that. And I'm sure we will come to the question of whether the PRGT has got the, the resources it needs to, to, um, to provide countries with the support they need. So um, I don't want to hold us back from lunch anymore. Please, can we try and get back as close to two o'clock as possible? Um, and we'll be strict on pushing you all in. And please, can you give our speakers another deserved round of applause? Thank you.